0: Surely there never was a fight that worth making than the one which we are in. Welcome to Bully Pulpit. That was Teddy Roosevelt. I'm Bob Garfield. With episode 27, Nobody Knows Anything, part two. When we left our conversation with Emmer Gentway, author of The Uncharted Present, we were listening to a clip from The Deer Hunter in 1978, in which Robert De Niro was drawing some obvious-sounding but perhaps subjective and incomplete conclusions about the nature of things. Stanley, see this? This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. Okay, Amer, I get your beef with his arrogant human absolutism. But look here, and you can take a little breather for the moment, because I'm going to shortcut through what could possibly be too long a conversation. I mean, you and the Buddha say it's an error to see the world only in relation to ourselves in one place, in one moment, with one set of human senses. And I say, okay, maybe some things aren't subjectively this, like De Niro's bullets, but if, say, I drive a car at 60 miles an hour into a brick wall, I'm gonna be objectively dead because my car and I can't pass through a brick wall. Objectively, nothing can pass through a brick wall. To which you reply, watch this YouTube video.
1: Much like Harry Potter and other wizards, the neutrinos casually wall through the wall. The neutrinos are so good at this, they pass through almost everything trillions stream through you every second without interacting.
0: All right, so let's pick up there. With invisible particle physics and everything else, I guess we tend not to account for the reality of that which we simply do not see.
1: There could be all kinds of things that we just don't interact with, and it's not exactly clear whether they are real or not. They're probably real for other creatures that can interact with them but not for us. So there is also a way of thinking about it as a matrix, right? If we lived in a matrix or, let's say, in a simulation or in a computer game, then driving into the wall actually wouldn't have much of an effect. Perhaps you lose your one life or perhaps you draw back one level and start over, right? You would be surprised there are some very serious philosophers toying with these ideas, and maybe this is a sign of our turbulent times. Maybe they're on to something. But an important, I think, caveat here is that I am not promoting relativism or post-truth or anything like this. We know where that leads. I think we can agree that there is an objective reality, and there are some methods for Discovering it, for understanding it, are better than other methods. That doesn't mean that what we're experiencing is that reality, that when we can be deluded on many levels and the reality may be forever outside of our reach, it may be even hard to define, but nevertheless, we can make progress in being more aligned with it, having our understanding more aligned with it. So this is kind of sounds like paradoxical. We have to keep both thoughts in mind at the same time to not fall into the extreme of, sort of nihilism on one end and overconfidence on the other. Hmm. So now we
0: veer inexorably towards uh, Zen Buddhism. Do I understand it correctly that the nub of this conversation seems to be the Buddha's recognition 15 centuries ago that humans err by relying too much on our own observations and experiences? He described what we now call an ecosystem. I'm quoting you, quoting him, of quote, interdependence of feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness. There is no me or mine in any one part just as a sound does not belong to any one part of the lute. Is that, in fact, the nub of it?
1: Yes, uh, yes, that's how I see one of the most important aspects of it. And in fact, it was closer to 25 centuries ago. It was probably even before the Socrates, which makes it even more impressive. Now, I see the feeling of having that soul itself that the Buddha alludes to as one of the roots of our problems. To me, it feels like an invisible man, a sort of a transparent core that all of our views are wrapped around. I would add that we're also the ones creating this core. So it's sort of this co-creation process what we believe and what we are are two sides of the same coin so that's part of this reference to the ecosystem everything works together and there's no me or mine (laughs) separately but we don't usually see it we just experience ourselves as being this solid chunk of immaterial stuff traveling through the life but that's just the way we construct the image of self and the image of time
0: i am so take me and make so much more so buddha's answer is to cultivate a certain way of life of mindfulness intention meditation what are those practices and how do they allow us to avoid being trapped in the imperfect subjective
1: hmm. well in simple terms we can think about mindfulness as an extreme form of curiosity. So if we go back to the koan, what is this? If we really ask this question wholeheartedly, not just as a technique that is supposed to lead us somewhere, but genuinely just having this feeling of the world being very strange, mysterious, That's, to me, the heart of the practice. And by the way, kids are very curious, I believe, because they don't yet suffer from this delusion of knowing what's really going on. So that's why they're genuinely in this this Zen space. And what Zen teachers specifically refer to is being curious about the workings of our own mind. So the question becomes, well, how do we remain curious about it? Do we need to fall back on some specific techniques and dedicate a lot of time to it? And so what comes to mind is a question asked of one famous teacher in India. And the teacher replied, it's not hard to keep your attention on a venomous snake that you live in the same room with. You don't need any practice, you don't need any reminder to stay aware and mindful of the snake. It is because we aren't aware of how poisonous our mind is that we don't bother paying attention to it.
0: So we train ourselves to be hyper-aware, and not only of predators. And how do you go about doing that? I know you're not a yogi, but what are the techniques for focusing attention, for seeing things that hitherto had been unseen, for not defaulting to a skewed, biased vision of the
1: world? So in most practices, they start with training attention to just stay Tied to something. Usually, it's a you know, they call it meditation object. It could be the breath that came from yoga. It could be a sensation. It could be an external object, or even a paradoxical equation, as they do with koans. There are also there are two styles of meditation. That's very crude simplification. What they call inclusive and exclusive. So exclusive meditation, you focus on one thing and then you exclude everything else. And if your mind wanders, you bring it back. When I was young, my father used to tell me that. Let your body on the cushion and let your mind in the body. Any type of feeling, just aware and let it be. So, in then, they had a series of so cartoons like comics, like a comic strip of attention being a bull tied to a pole, and this wild bull is trying to get away, but the rope holds him still, and then when the bull is tamed, it is taken to the marketplace safely. So that's one class of techniques. The other ones are more called natural meditation or inclusive meditation. just means that your awareness stays open. You're aware of anything that arises without getting attached to it, without following it without resisting it. Now, this is complicated for most people. Our minds are very busy. So the question becomes, what's the best technique for a person? Now, this is my personal opinion. I feel that I started long ago, started with regular meditation techniques, and they may have helped me sort of get oriented. But I feel like with our sedentary lifestyle, it's Difficult for many people to maintain sitting practice. We sit in the offices and the cars and then we come back home and then we need to sit in meditation again. So if you read Buddha about the foundation of mindfulness, he talks more generally about mindfulness of the body. So you may not have to sit still necessarily, You could be just aware of being present to the sensations and to the sounds, and just kind of play with it, experiment with it. The technique is not important. It's just becoming aware of what's happening in your mind. Hmm.
0: Wasn't there a Greek school of philosophy called peripatetic, where you go for long walks and contemplate your ass off, or my version of it, which I call a shower? (laughs) Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, in fact, there is a form of walking meditation, and they do it in a very focused state. They make very slow steps, and they become aware of how their foot touches the ground and how their weight shifts and so on. Again, it's a question of experimentation. If a shower is something that brings you in contact with your body, and your body is always in the present, you can fantasize about it, you can imagine things, worry about it, and so on, but the experience itself kind of grounds you in this present moment. So if that's what works for you, just don't get boiled if you stay there for too long trying to meditate on
0: <laughs> Well, the more enlightened I get, the higher my water bill is. So uh, it's an investment in myself. So tell me, emergent way, is that what they mean by the emergent way?
1: Are you emerging or are you already there? (laughs) Emergent way is just a word that I coined because I like to think about these questions in contemplative and scientific terms at the same time. I feel they're very complementary. So in Taoism, they have an image of the way that follows the Tao. And this way cannot be known in advance. It can only be followed, kind of very meditative activity of following the way. And this is an ongoing discovery. Now, in science, there is a complementary concept of emergence. So we say the whole is greater than the sum of its parts more complex things emerge from their simple components but they're different from those components they have new properties and that's how the universe seems to function so if we apply this to the habits of our thinking as long as we are following on autopilot we are not mindful we're just reactive and we're being manipulated externally by our internalized images ideals beliefs social pressures identities and so on we have a little chance of changing our minds because we have no insight into them but if we are mindful if we are curious in that very fundamental sense that we can be truly open minded i think and then the new understanding will emerge we're just kind of creating this openness this space of unknowing where something new can arise so
0: the emergent way this is a path to enlightenment on the enlightenmentometer where are you? Are you like in the red zone? Where is
1: the needle? <laughs> well, I don't think I'm qualified to talk about enlightenment. and I have no idea where I am on it, but I would say that the one who adopts this perspective, I don't know whether they can get to enlightenment, but they are probably much less likely to go storm the capital. That <laughs> may be good enough nowadays.
0: Well, I'm glad you uh, brought back an image of Trumpism, because what we've just described—mindfulness, meditation, ridding yourself of assumptions, or or even surrendering to your brain chemistry—it sounds like just the ticket for raising your consciousness, but not a great structure for running a society or a court system, you know, even science, all of which are built on at least what passes for objective facts. If I have a video and DNA and a smoking gun, you know, I don't think it's going to do you any good if your defense is, well, your honor, there are blind
1: spots in human perception. You go into jail. It's actually a big question, and there is a lot of discussion going about our system of justice, about free will, about responsibility. The way I feel about it is that everything is an expression of human nature. So there was a psychologist, a pretty famous one. He was one of the founders of cognitive psychology. He was also a Buddhist teacher, and I was attending his seminars in sort of both capacities, and I was learning from him. And he gave this example that you are standing at a traffic light, and suddenly another car hits you from behind, and you're angry, and you run out, and you're approaching this other driver. And the driver says, well, I'm sorry, I was driving in the next lane, and the child ran into the road, and all I could do is swerve into your lane. And you see the child, and you see this young, scared parents, and you have nothing to blame anymore. You kind of see how this whole karma
0: unfolded. You said karma. Uh, it might be an SUV You know, uh, it could
1: <laughs> <laughs> sport Ute ma. Yeah, this was an unintended fun. Yes, yes. But I think this way we kind of can become more accepting of our. You know, there is one a famous Buddhist teacher who said. When you see your enemy suffering, this is the beginning of insight. And I think going back to the challenges of our times, the polarization, perhaps this way of thinking may not exactly help us solve the court problems, at least not in the near term, but it may help us become more accepting on the other side. We can take Trump, right? He could have invested his inheritance and live a happy, joyful, peaceful life unburdened, doing whatever he wanted to. And instead, he had been torturing himself and others with his greed and insecurity and rage. And what would be like to feel compassionate of him, to say Trump has the Buddha nature, just like all well, other living beings? And I know the Buddha must be turning in his grave at this analogy. But this is something, maybe this is the first step for us to recognize that people who disagree with us If we were to trace their life, we would be completely understanding of the place they were in. And the only reason we are outraged by them is because of our limited understanding. We don't have to agree with them, but also we can accept them as fellow humans. Well, that's pretty zen,
0: Emair. But I must say, I must say that I've been on this journey a bit myself. I mean, we live in an incarceration state and I've come to believe that we need more of what is called restorative justice, which isn't about punishment in prison, but sort of empathy and getting to the root of misconduct and trying to find another path. Ten years ago, I would have rolled my eyes at that as being a bleeding heart reflex, but I no longer do. Nonetheless, I'm going to persist, because, and I'm not doing this to be argumentative. But I do want to get back to where we started in this parsing the truth and falsity of politicians' rhetoric. Does your enhanced enlightenment obliterate uncharitable thoughts about Trump or Tucker Carlson or Ted Cruz or Marjorie Taylor Greene?
1: Greene repeatedly endorsed outlandish, dangerous conspiracy theories about Democrats and endorsed executing Democratic leaders and
0: federal agents What I'm asking is, I am all but unhinged with fear and rage over encroaching fascism. Where do you come by your equanimity?
1: Again, I don't want to pose as someone who is beyond reactivity. In fact, I don't think anybody is. I've met a number of Buddhist teachers, and some have felt really much more advanced in that regard than most of us. But, but it's just we're all human. I think that recognizes that helps us not get into our heads. So I do share your concerns. And I grew up under dictatorship. I was certainly hoping my children wouldn't have to. I also had a chance to learn a lot about fascism growing up, which unfortunately many Americans may not know much about and don't have a chance to learn from some lessons of history. But one thing you realize when learning about it is that fascists play on our ignorance and desires and grievances, and we all have that. Some people are less educated and reflective than others, and they are more easily taken advantage of. That doesn't make them deplorable. And sort of going back to my reflections on Trump, those who manipulate us are deluded in their own ways. Is this an excuse for Tucker Carlson? No. But I prefer not to think about Tucker Carlson, but about people who accept what he says on faith, who don't have ways of questioning it, or at least being open to alternatives. My question is, is it possible to reach to these people on some very basic level, kind of bypassing our social conditioning and our beliefs?
0: Like media literacy as as a form of
1: Zen questioning assumptions? Well, I'm sort of going back to the very beginning of our conversation. To me, it is certainly important to have media literacy, to have some basic background in empirical science and understanding human biases. This education is certainly necessary, and I wish the school system did more of that. But I think the most fundamental quality that comes before education is this basic open-mindedness, just having the ability to endure this state of uncertainty, this discomfort that we evolved to have, to have that decision shortcut, to really quickly use some heuristic. Our entire life is so based on our beliefs, on our expectations. We have expectations running on the background. All the time, like you meet someone unexpectedly, right? It's not like we thought about who we would meet, but we always have these background expectations. And just suspending our knowledge, just asking questions seems to be so important. I think if everybody did that, that step alone without any additional education would have lowered the heat quite dramatically. One last question.
0: Way back in the introduction to uh, part one of this conversation, I observed that your home landscaping is uh, subpar. Now, in the spirit of this dialogue, considering the close mindedness and limited frame of reference and quirks of the human mind and so forth, have I told the truth? Does your lawn usually look like shit?
1: Well, as you know, this is paradoxical, right? My lawn is a conceptual teaching device which invites you to reflect on the fate of our mind when it is left unattended and doesn't get nourished with uh, care and attention. <laughs> Never mind, I'm just lazy. Bob. Yeah,
0: metaphor aside,
1: <laughs> of
0: course I'm, I direct the witness to answer the question Does your lawn
1: usually look like shit? No, the answer is, it always looks like shit. (laughs) (laughs) Amir,
0: or as I like to call you, Boris, thank you so much for joining me.
1: And thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Amir Gentway is an artificial intelligence developer and author of The Uncharted Present, on softening the edges of the self and reality. We have no idea what he's going to do is all in your mind. The Lawnmower Man. All right, we're done here. Bully Pulpit is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Vuolo. Our theme was composed by Julie Miller and the team at Harvest Creative Services in Lansing, Michigan. Clips were from Symmetry Magazine, MSNBC, The Deer Hunter, Third Day, Zen Moon, The Mills Brothers, and Marshall. Bully Pulpit is a production of BooksmartStudios.org. I'm Bob Garfield.